This is Comic Shenanigans, episode 820, a conversation with Rick Hoberg. Welcome to the Comic Shenanigans Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Chapman. This is episode 820. It's our conversation with Rick Hoberg. Uh, Rick, who has worked in comics for a long time. He worked in this uh, predominantly in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, and then he also came back and did some other work in the 2000s, but primarily uh, you would also know him as a storyboard artist. Well, you may not know him, but you've seen his work. Uh, he's worked on Spider-Man and His Amazing Friends, Spider-Man in the 80s as well, the show that pre- uh, was right before Amazing Friends. Uh, he worked on the X-Men animated series and many other projects, including Avengers Earth's Mightiest Heroes. Uh, I was very privileged to be able to sit down and chat with Rick, and he's worked on so many different things, so it was fun to be able to kind of pick his brain about things and, and hear some interesting stories, and there's a fun Stan Lee story near the end as well. I believe it's near the end. Uh, anyways, it was, a, it was a great time having Rick on the show, and uh, I think you're really going to enjoy this interview. Uh, before we get into it, though, just some housekeeping. You can always email me at comicshenanigans at gmail.com, rate and review the show on iTunes, subscribe to us on iTunes, and also listen to us on Stitcher. Um, and then in terms of upcoming episodes, we have an episode coming up with uh, Eric and Julia Lewald, uh, who were the showrunners of the X-Men animated series that will be coming on uh, in an episode uh, coming out in, I think, a week or two, a week and a half. Uh, we have an episode coming up with Ian Flynn, who uh, was the most recent writer of Sonic the Hedgehog and actually had been writing it for quite a, quite a while. Uh, and now he's, uh, he's working on the Sonic the Hedgehog Bad Guys miniseries. Um, but has it looks like he's stepped away from the main ongoing Sonic book, so I'm, I'll be talking with him. And we also have an upcoming interview with Adam Hughes uh, that I'm really excited about as well. So there's some good stuff on the horizon. Uh, you can always email me at, comic, as I said, comicshenanigans at gmail.com. But without further ado, let's jump right into the conversation as I sit down with Rick Hoberg to discuss his work in comics and in animation. Enjoy. All right. Rick, welcome to the Comic Shenanigans podcast. How are you today? Nice to be here. Uh, so to start us off, I always like to go back in time and have a sense of when did comic books in general kind of enter your life? Uh, when you're, did they enter when you were younger and you were kind of reading or what was your first kind of interaction with comics as a medium? Um, it was, uh, I know for a fact it was a, it was a Dell Tarzan comic because I was interested in Tarzan as a child and this, uh, this had to be when I was five, six years old that I believe my dad bought me a Tarzan comic and brought it home. And from there I was kind of hooked on comics. I quickly, uh, got interested in the, uh, the Batman that was going on in the fifties and books like that. Uh, mostly I was interested in, uh, DC comics and Dell comics until Marvel showed up when I was about, I don't know, eight or nine or 10 years old, something like that. And then I became fixated on that. <laughs> but I, I still continued to read every comic book I could get my hands on. Everything from uh, uh, not only the adventure comics, but uh, humor comics as well, like Archie and Sad Sack. Uh, some of the things that were a little more what I would consider juvenile like um, uh, Casper the Friendly Ghost and stuff like that. But that sort of material was never of great interest to me. I always found it, it's, 
silly even as a child. Hmm. So, and I know it's fun stuff and it's real well done. It just wasn't my cup of tea. Just like the Disney books weren't. I never had much interest in uh, the Donald Duck or or Scrooge McDuck books either. Hmm. So when did you kind of discover or kind of come to the realization that, you know, you had some skill as an artist yourself and when did you kind of think, well, maybe I want to make something of this? Uh, as a teenager, I, I was always from the time I was about eight or nine making, doing what a lot of guys did when they were younger, with that is drawing your own comic books and stapling them together and, <laughs> and that sort of thing. And my skills started to blossom more as I was a teenager. Uh, I did a, uh, uh, a fanzine uh, called Fantasy Adventures with a couple other guys, Don Parmalee and Gino Membrino. Uh, Parmalee's here on, is on Facebook, so I do speak with him on and off. Uh, after that, I uh, became... Um, more interested in my drawing because the woman who I met as a teenager, we became sweethearts as a teenager, she encouraged me as my mother had continued to do. My dad really never encouraged me in this stuff very much, but he wasn't trying to make, you know, make it look like it was a bad thing to do. Um, she became uh, uh, quite an advocate for me, and thus I began to study true art a little more and took uh, um, fine art. In, uh, in college, that's what I got my BA in. But the minute I had graduated, I realized that was not at all what I was interested in. I wanted to go into comics. And within a couple of years, I'd met Russ Manning, and he uh, offered me a job down the line uh, doing Tarzan comics. And I, I was working with Bill Ray at that time. Wow. Now, a question. So when you're, like, where were you, uh, where did you grow up, first of all? Like, were you in New York? or Orange were you somewhere County, else? California. Okay. Orange County, California. I, I grew up in Santa Ana, and at the time that I got into um, comics, I was living in Huntington Beach. Okay. I was a beach kid, basically. <laughs> now, what? So your path, I mean, to kind of breaking in. So you're working with Russ Manning, and then how does how do you end up at working with Marvel, and you know, working on you know at the time the nascent kind of what if comic? Because you did some covers, you did some interiors. You know, how did that kind of crossover from working with Russ? kind of a transition into working for Marvel? Well, Russ was kind of an entity to himself. He lived in a small canyon uh, up in um, uh, up in the hills behind Orange County, a place called Majeska Canyon. And he, uh, uh, he there really wasn't anybody to connect through him. I met uh, Bill Stout, who was out there once in a while, and I, I got to know uh, Mike Royer, but my connection at Marvel came through Roy Thomas. I was uh, I had shown Roy a couple of my things here and there at uh, Comic Con. I think it was, was the initial connection, and then later I met him again when I showed him a revised portfolio um, when he started living in L.A. And at that point, he had moved to L.A. to try to get into the. Uh, the movie and television business as well as working in comics. Hmm. So he was like the first guy who was in New York as an editor that was able to step away from uh, New York and thus 
um, uh, create his own kind of autonomy, which the rest of the editors and and art, and art people didn't like that. So he actually created a small group out in L.A., and I was like the first guy that he got hold of and said, you want to do some comics for me? So I started off doing um, some uh, illustrations for Savage Sword and things like that, just small things like spot illustrations or redoing the map of Hyboria was one of my first assignments. <laughs> but, you know, you'll take any job you can get to get in the door at a place like Marvel. And pretty soon he decided it was time to give me a shot and gave me the what-ifs. And that was about the same time as the Star Wars stuff starting up. I think that was within about a year of the of that mm. that I started off doing the uh, uh, the what if books for him. I did um, actually. I think the two cover the first two covers I did before I actually did any interior artwork because the the job the first actual full job I did for him was finishing. Uh, what if the Fantastic Four had different powers, which was like. Issue six or seven, I think. I, I could be wrong because I lose track of those things. And and that was a job that Jim Craig had started, but he then was offered 3D Man to do with Roy, and he took that, and I got the job uh, penciling What If on and off. Because What If was one of those books where any artist could do the book. So it was easy for a guy like me to step in, not worry too much about deadlines, and you know, get the job done. And Roy really just took to my work at that point. And I, of course, was a huge fan of his. I'd always loved Roy's work. Now, to go back to Russ and then and then going back to Roy, so working with Russ, like, what what was that like? Because obviously he was much older at that point. Um, so, you know, and you're kind of take, being taken under the wing. Did it feel like that? Or what was the working relationship like? I, again, I was lucky to be working with a guy who, work I had idolized. Russ was one of my favorite comic book artists as a child. I, I fell in love with Brothers of the Spear, which he did as a backup to Tarzan in the Tarzan the Tarzan book that was done at Dell, and then uh, Gold Key. I'm not sure whether that actually ended up being started at Gold Key or Dell. I'd have to go back and look at that. But I loved it, just his style, and it, it was really great seeing that stuff translated to, I mean, uh, done, his style done as science fiction when he started Magnus, which has always been one of my favorite comic books. I just think Magnus is a brilliant piece of the combining of superheroes and science fiction. Mm -hmm. So that's, uh, that's where I really fell in love with Russ's work, and I followed it all, all the, ever since then. I literally... Uh, read his Tarzan comics and then when he got the Tarzan comic strip which I was following in a local paper I cut those out every week in fact the Sundays because they were just so gorgeous and when I got a chance to meet him was when I was uh, uh, one of the three a triumvirate of presidents running a local comic book uh, club <laughs> called the West Coast Comic Book Society and we ended up um, um getting to meet Russ because he was the local celebrity at the time in comics and Gene Henderson, the guy who had run the, uh, uh, the, the, the club and was invested in doing stuff for San Diego Comic-Con, uh, knew Russ and invited him to a, um, an art show that we were throwing 
And Russ just took to my work and said, I'm going to give you a call and see if you're interested in doing some work for me down the line. And it wasn't too long after that that he called me and Bill Ray, and we went up there together because we had become friends. We were fans before we were professionals together. And he, he just teamed us up because we'd both come looking for work when he called us and said, I'd like to see both of your portfolios. So we drove up to... Uh, Majeska Canyon, which was probably a 30, 40 minute drive from where we lived in Orange County. It was in the same area, but Majeska was way up in the hills. It was all small roads and stuff to get up there. Hmm. And Russ was a character to work for. He was excellent at his work all the time, but a real taskmaster. He wasn't going to, he didn't take any crap from anybody. And you could get fired just for doing the wrong thing at the wrong time. And he was a very conservative man. So you, you had to be very cautious around him with, you know, how you spoke and so forth. But he also had other uh, duties within the, the community up there. He was uh, a volunteer fireman and stuff. So there would be times we would go up there to get assignments, and he'd get a call and say, i got to go, there's a fire. You know, and we'd just be going, what are we supposed to do? So we just have to go home and come home, come up the next day and get our job, you know, basically. Wow! But it was enjoyable working for him, and that led to me uh, being his uh, what we, what you would call an assistant on Star Wars. Because I don't believe anybody, maybe Mike Royer, but even Mike probably went through the uh, the thing with Russ, where Russ would do the penciling on a strip and then hand it off to whoever was his assistant, and you would do all the inking that. He didn't want to do because he came from an old school of comic strip artists that felt even if you had assistants, they did the stuff that wouldn't um, signature the work. And thus, Russ would do all the hands and all the faces and things like that that said Russ Manning. So you ended up being the guy who did all the scut work, basically. Hmm. Now, so it wasn't really an inking job, in my opinion. <laughs> now, I mean, it's such a—I mean, that must have been such a crash course in like how to do comics, how to, you know, how to, you know, add in add in something that didn't take away, obviously, from the primary artist. Like, what other skills do you think you really picked up during that kind of crash course that really informed, you know, your, you know, the other, you know, the, the next thirty, forty years of of your work in terms of, you know, the lessons you learned. Uh, well, composition, uh, definitely, because my composition and and the more simplistic approach that I take, which is a, a hallmark of his work, it comes from Russ. There's no doubt about that. And I've always enjoyed the more simplistic uh, uh, artists in the business. I, I prefer a Russ Manning uh, to, a, uh, to a Al Williamson, to be honest with you. I, I love those guys' work. It's just that my work lent itself more to that styling so for instance i would i would much i much prefer uh uh for a for a more modern artist i much prefer a uh a darwin cook hmm. than i would to somebody else who does a more illustrative type approach interesting now let's talk so, about uh, russ is definitely a heavy influence on me for sure now let me i'm curious about you know, from the early days, your kind of your relationship with Roy. And again, you know, as you said, he was someone who you'd read his work, you, you know, definitely idolized him. And then you're now you're working with him and you're working for Marvel. Um, you know, what, how did your relationship with him kind of develop in terms of your collaboration and you're know, just you kind of settling into I'm doing this, I'm working for Marvel now. 
Well, that was uh, that was more of a friendship, to be honest with you. Roy and I are still friends, and that that was a completely different approach to working with Russ. Roy always treated me like a friend. He came over to all my social gatherings and stuff because I threw a lot of parties at that time just to, you know, get in with all the people that were involved in the business and, and just to get to know everybody. And Russ, I mean, Roy uh, was very sociable, really a nice guy. And when we were working together, it was always more that Marvel approach where a guy would give you a an outline or or a or a rough story treatment, and you would completely flesh it out, and then he would dialogue it. And Roy loved working like that, so that's the way I always worked with him. And I basically uh, um, was working with other writers at the time because Roy had. Uh, Christy Marks and Don Glute doing a lot of work on books like uh, uh, What If and so forth. I don't think Roy actually wrote any of those books that I did. It was always Don Glute, and I, I worked with Doug Mensch mm-hmm. on the uh, What If Fu Manchu book. But Roy was really easy to work with. I always enjoyed it. It was a real pleasure to get back together with him at DC Comics and do All-Star Squadron. No, the only reason I left that book is because uh, they were going to put an anchor on me that I couldn't live with, so I just had to walk away from it. So I'm curious about obviously between you know the you know you you jump in at Marvel and then you know a few years later you end up at DC working with Roy, but in the interim, how do you start breaking into animation? Well, those things were overlapping a lot. I quite often was doing comics while I was doing animation. Animations, uh, the animation gig started for me just before um, I got the Star Wars gig, I believe. I'll have to, I'd have to literally sit and suss that out a little bit because (laughs) all of that was overlapping at the time. I got a call from uh, Doug Wildey, who was working at Hanna-Barbera doing Godzilla for them, the, the, the first Godzilla cartoon show. And he's needed some guys who could draw more in a comic book style because everything they were doing at that point at Hanna-Barbera was more in the style of Flintstones or the more most realistic thing they were doing was Scooby-Doo. Hmm. So he needed some guys that could work for him in a style that was nearer to what you'd see in a comic book. And he'd already hired uh, Dave Stevens. And the day I went in to interview with him, Will Minio was there. And we both got the job at the same time. We both ended up in the layout department for for Doug working on learning how to do layouts for animation and drawing uh, uh, Godzilla for him. And it was it was a blast. It was just great because I got to meet all sorts of other people that ended up there, like Russ Heath and Mike Sikowski, who came in looking for work when things were drying up for them in the anime, in the comic book biz and such. So it was just a great uh, uh, situation for me, and it uh, gave me another um, uh, way to apply my talents. And one of the guys who has influenced me most in the business of comics and being an artist for a living is Mark Evanier. And Mark always impressed upon me that always have another door or two open to you to, to be able to ply your trade. Otherwise, you're going to be starving somewhere along the line. In fact, he's the guy 
who told Doug, give this guy a call. He, he can do you a lot of good. <laughs> and it worked out great. Doug actually became not only a, uh, a boss, but a mentor and a friend as well. Hmm. Actually, it's interesting. So you bring up the idea of kind of mentorship, and obviously, you know, those were some of the formative relationships that really helped you apply your talents and develop. So I'm curious about, um, so before I actually reached out to you, I had interviewed uh, Stefano Gariano, and he had said, oh, you got to oh, have... Oh, Stefano, yeah, he's a good friend of mine. Yeah. And he's like, you got to have Rick on. He's so interesting, and he was such a mentor to so many young artists uh, who were kind of coming up, and he, he obviously said that, you know, you had mentored him as well and, and been, a you know, a, definitely an influence on him. So what was, was it pretty easy for you to kind of you know, embrace a mentorship role, considering the mentor figures that you had so that you could kind of pay it forward? Uh, this has always been something that I felt uh, really honored to be able to do. That is, mentor others and or give them opportunities in the business because I was given opportunities in the business. And I just think not only is that a humanistic thing to do, it's a profitable thing to do because sooner or later those people will pay you back. Hmm. And it's pretty much worked out that way for me. I only mentored one guy who hasn't come back to me on all these years and given me an opportunity or given me a job somewhere along the line. So I just think it's just one of those things that you learn in the, in the comics biz and in the animation biz that, uh, you want to try to help other people up because then they'll be there for you and they'll also have um, opportunities that you might not have. Mm-hmm. So it just seemed like a natural thing to do. So I did it whenever it was uh, 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 available to me. But also those guys were doing work for me. Most of the time when you hire uh, uh, an assistant, you end up uh, – getting the best out of them at that time too and that gives them a chance to move on beyond what you're giving them at that point for instance i've mentored uh, tim burgard and vinton hoik uh, uh, along the way and stefano yeah but stefano was already a really good artist when i met him it was always a pleasure to work with that guy he might be listening to this so he'll appreciate that <laughs> Oh, he knows how I feel about him. He's just, I love him and his family, and they're just a, a he's just a, a wonderful guy to work with because he's so talented, and he's one of the best inkers I can think of because he's not really an inker. He's, a, he's an artist who just applies what he does on top of you, and that's the best of both worlds. You know, I, I like a, a good, slick inker, but I don't want somebody who's just going to reproduce what I put on the page. That's just not as much fun. I, I appreciate, and there's guys who did a great job doing that. It's just not the way you have fun in this business. The way you have fun is by doing something and then somebody pluses it for you. That's that's really a great thing in this business. There's other guys, though, that uh, you don't want to work with because they don't do any more than what's on the page, and sometimes not that. Hmm. Most everybody in the business who gets work, though, is talented. There's no doubt about that. Yeah. So I have a question about, in general, like kind of looking at the, the projects that you've worked on in animation, I mean, is it any, I guess it can't be an accident that it seems like you've done a lot of, you know, superhero related projects over the years. Was that just kind of a natural gravitation or how did that kind of come about? Yeah, I love superheroes. Yeah, I love superheroes. It's, uh, to me, that's American mythology. You know, I I think that's the nearest we, we get to uh, 
you know, to true mythology. I think America has always been a, a place where we, we went for the rugged individualists, the Paul Bunyans and the Davy Crockett's and things like that. But once Superman showed up, that became a whole nother thing. That literally integrated the gods of old into the thinking of America. And I, I just love the idea of superheroes. I just think they're a great uh, medium. I know a lot of people disdain them, but I think they're, you know, in fact, just recently I read one of those things that Alan Moore wrote, and I just went, that's really sad that he he has to degrade something that he kind of put a cherry on top of, and he now doesn't appreciate what it is that he contributed to. Hmm. He, he literally looks at it like, his was the final word and that'll never be possible in any medium. There's always another person who's got another thing to say in any medium. Absolutely. So I want to ask about, so when you first start moving into animation, so again, as you said, you're working on Godzilla, um, obviously of note to comic book fans, you worked on the Spider-Man 80s series in the eighties as well as Spider-Man and his amazing friends. And obviously this was, you know, coming Spider-Man had already been on TV in the 60s series, but this was Spider-Man kind of getting another shot at animation. What did that feel like to be able to kind of work on that project? Oh, that was exciting as hell, because literally here I was working again with Will Minio, who had become friends with over at Hanna-Barbera, and we'd actually transferred together over to Ruby Spears to work on Plastic Man uh, for a while, and that's where I got a chance to work on Thundar. And after Thundar, I think I did a little bit of comics work before they called me at Marvel and said, could you come in for an interview? And I knew they were doing some new stuff, but I wasn't uh, completely aware of what it was because we had grapevines at that point, but there was no real uh, media for comics at that point. There was only things like... Um, uh, the Rockets Blast and Comic Collector and things like that. And their their uh, media information was mostly about comic books themselves and who was doing them. So when I got over there and they said they were doing, you know, they were going to do this Spider-Man uh, syndicated show and they want to integrate all of the, uh, uh, as many Marvel characters as they could get away with into it. And Stan Lee was there. I was like, all in for that. That was a perfect place for me. I just thoroughly loved it. And not not too long after that, after we'd done a few episodes of the uh, the Spider-Man show, they uh, made a deal with NBC to do Spider-Man and his amazing friends. So those two shows truly overlapped. We were just finishing the 26 episodes of Spider-Man, which are pretty good. They're, they're, they're a fun show um, because they're not as silly as Spider-Man and his amazing friends, even though that's well-regarded even today. it's For me, it's hard to watch because I wanted so much more out of it, which we started to get later on and evolved into what became the X-Men shows, which is really where we wanted to go with all of that material. Hmm. So it was just a perfect place for me. I had a grand time working over there. It seemed like every project was tailored for my talents. We did Spider-Man, and his amazing friends, and then included the Hulk in the show, so they had an hour block there with that, and then uh, G.I. Joe showed up and the Transformers, so there was just a ton of stuff to do, and then I ran off to join DC Comics 
And so there was a lag there before I came back to Marvel and ended up producing a show called The Defenders of the Earth. I was one of four producers on that show and directors. We were kind of producer directors on that show. And from there, I stayed with them until we finished uh, Pride of the X-Men, which was pretty much the last thing Marvel did before they closed their doors and they reopened later as Marvel Films, I think it was called. Mm-hmm. where they did uh, Spider-Man, the animated series. Absolutely, yeah, of course. So I have a few questions. So first of all, I mean... So these were all overlapping, just so we're clear. My my career is such that I was doing a couple of jobs at the same time in many ways. Although when I worked for DC, quite often, I was just working for them because I was that was a great job, too. I was really excited to move over to DC and to have guys like Roy there and... Dick Giordano just took me under his wing. He was such a great guy. Really? Okay. So I'm curious. So when you're working for DC, so, I mean, was it uh, Rory kind of putting in a word for you? Because obviously a lot of the projects you're working on from All-Star Squadron, Captain Carrot, and his amazing zoo crew, you're paired up with Roy. So was that part of what that connection got you? Yes, exactly. Roy, Roy did pester them until I got hired. And he had uh, a problem with uh, with Joe Orlando and Vince Coletta. They just didn't want to hire me, and they had they had the reins at that point. And it it was just shortly after he tried was trying to get me in that Dick Giordano was made the the, the head editor, and that changed things in a lot of ways. A lot of new talent was invited in, and I was one of them. And I ended up on a couple of books that really sparkled for me and for them. I, I did a few, I inked a few issues. I started out as an inker over there, which was good for me because I needed to hone my inking skills. And they put me on guys like uh, uh, Ross Andrew was mm. a revelation. That was the, the, the job I did over Ross Andrew uh, was a Batman, Brave and the Bold, Batman and the Spectre. And that was just one of the great teaching moments of my life. I just learned so much inking that guy's work because he was just brilliant. And then I inked uh, uh, Chuck Patton on an issue, and I was going to start on DC Presents on a George Perez job, uh, Superman and OMAC. And I got three pages in when Dick Giordano called me and said, look, I'd like you to drop that job, and I want to give you the penciling job on the first Justice League annual. And I couldn't turn that down. That was just because Justice League had been one of my favorite comics as a kid. So I got that opportunity. Dick inked the work, and the the book was uh, edited by Len Wein and written by Paul Levitt. So it was just a wonderful job to work on. And from there, I got... Uh, uh, let me see. I think there was a couple other small jobs in between that and Captain Carrot. And shortly after Cap- Captain Carrot, they put me on All-Star, which is really where I wanted to be. Roy kept giving me small bits of All-Star stuff to do. And again, I got jobs like inking uh, uh, Adrian Gonzalez on All-Star. Again, a wonderful teaching moment because Adrian was just a wonderful artist, just an incredible penciler. So it was great. Uh, stuff where you you learn while you're going too because I wasn't technically an inker but I drew well so that really aided my skills and it improved my drawing skills all the way around working over guys like that 
when you take over, when you start, I think you did like four or five issues of Batman in this period. I mean, what was that like to be able to kind of say that, I, you know, I'm doing the main Batman book and I'm the penciler on this? Oh, it was great. The, the problem I had on Batman was Len didn't want me on the book. I have nothing against Len because I always liked him and he was always a great guy, but I was kind of forced on him. And then on top of that, Doug Mensch was hard to work with for me. He just was. It wasn't a, a great gelling of, of talents. I'm not saying anything wrong with Doug. It just didn't work between the two of us. Mm. So uh, when they said we'd want, like to move on from there and give you something else, I went, that's fine. Because I wasn't enjoying it at that point. And I, you do a book like Batman when you want to enjoy the work. But I wasn't enjoying it. So it was, it was a good time to move on at that point. But yes, Batman was a great moment for me. I thoroughly enjoyed uh, getting the job and doing the first few issues was a blast. But after that, it just got to be a slog. Hmm. Now, in the mid-80s, you get to launch Power, Power Girl with Paul Kupperberg. What was that process like? Oh, well, Paul's always fun to work with. He's an easy guy to work with, and... I, I enjoyed doing it, but it wasn't one of my better jobs because they wanted me to redo her hairstyle and they wanted to do it more as a soap opera. And to be honest with you, that wasn't my forte. My forte was more um, superhero action than it was doing the uh, 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 the soap opera stuff that, that was so prevalent at that point. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm curious... So it was a good job, though. I enjoyed it. Yeah. Now, I'm curious, in the, I guess, very early 90s or 1990, you work on the uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit comic. What was what was that? Or, sorry, just Roger Rabbit, I should say. What was it like working on that project and given, you know, where, where the character had been in the movie and, and just being able to kind of play with that character? Oh, I was really excited about it because I loved the movie. And, and once I started drawing the book... I realized, oh, God, this doesn't work as a comic book. You you have to have this as live action with animated characters in it, or it just doesn't work. You can't do two different styles of drawn drawn characters and expect people to believe they're in two different worlds. So uh, it didn't take long before I lost interest in that book. I think I only did two or three full issues before I said, that's enough of this. You know, it's just not working. I love doing the covers. The covers were fun. But you, 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 do you understand what I'm saying here? Absolutely, that, uh, yeah. You'd be like doing a Roger Rabbit TV cartoon and expecting people to believe that the the supposedly live-action characters were different from the, uh, uh, from the Roger Rabbit character. So it just didn't work for me. And, and I just didn't see that coming. I, I thought, sure, it was going to be one of those great gigs, and it just didn't turn out that way. And it wasn't too quickly after I left that they canceled the whole line anyway. It wasn't selling for them. They didn't realize that these weren't huge money makers like they thought they were going to be, because they thought if they could uh, integrate all of the artists out of Disney, they could make great money in their worldwide sales of comics. But that just wasn't to be for them because the comics didn't sell worth a damn here in the U.S. And I don't think they did that well overseas except for the Mickey Mouse and Donald Duck line, which were the same as they'd been before. They weren't much different. They were using a lot of the same people, the same artists and writers, too. So it was one of those things where it just wasn't to be. Mm. Now, what, what... They'd have what, done better off if they'd have done books like uh, Gargoyles and stuff. Excuse me, uh, Give me a second here, my dog. Sure. 
What are you doing here? I'm going to step in the other room and talk to you because <laughs> I got a basset hound and when she starts barking at something, just no stopping her. So, anyway. <laughs> I'm curious about um, what was it like kind of being a long-running artist on Green Arrow and working with Mike Grell? Oh, that was a great job. I love that. Yeah, Mike, uh, when I left L.A., I left L.A. in about uh, 1989. I, we, we moved up to Seattle because I was just burned out in L.A. L.A. was getting to be pretty grueling for me, all the driving around, because at that point I was not only doing some... Uh, doing some animation work. I was also storyboarding in some film capacity and, and advertising capacity. And that just was grueling work. It just wasn't much fun. Mm. Yeah. I, I really, uh, I, I did two or three jobs on, uh, working with, um, the crews that were doing Jean-Claude Van Damme's, uh, films over at Canon. And the only guy who was pleasant to work with on that was Jean-Claude Van Damme. The director was a pain in the ass. Everybody else was a pain in the ass. And that was just, I realized, I can't do this for a living. This is just not fun at all. Because you want to have fun. If you're going to be an artist, you want to have fun doing what you're doing. You don't want to just grind it out all the time. Mm -hmm. So I decided to get out of L.A. And we moved, we uh, just decided to leave and not worry about where the next job was going to come from. But those followed me anyway. We were right at the point where FedEx was starting to uh, be very useful to all of the companies. So the, they would call me and just say, look, you don't need to worry about coming into a studio. We'll just send you work. And they would FedEx me boxes of storyboard paper and models and so forth and scripts. And I worked on shows like Denver the Dinosaur and and a number of shows over at uh, Deke and things like that. And then the X-Men popped up again. So I did that for a short time before I met uh, Grell. And Grell and I hit it off. He was a real nice guy. I enjoyed uh, being around him. He offered me some uh, assistant work on James Bond, which was, again, enjoyable, but kind of grueling work. And as soon as uh, he, uh, I did a couple of those, he said, we're going to be uh, looking for a new artist on Green Arrow because Dan Jurgens is leaving. And can we split the book between you and Dennis Cowan? And I said, that's fine with me. I, I don't mind if Dennis does it. And Dennis and I did it together on and off, like every other issue or every other storyline, something like that. I forget how it worked exactly. For a short period, because I think Dennis just... Uh, wasn't interested and had other opportunities. So when they offered the book to me, I immediately took it. Hmm. And my first full job on it was issue number 50. And I drew it basically with maybe one or two fill-ins along the way through issue 75. So that was a pretty good run for me, a couple of years. And at that point, I got the opportunity to do The Strangers, so I moved off it. But uh, Green Arrow was a huge help for me again in that I had to approach it from a style that was totally different from anything I'd done before. So I started using a process of uh, photographic swiping and more realistic posing and so forth, something more akin to uh, what many of the illustrator types would do, you no. know, uh, the Neil Adams, those guys, basically. Wow. I mean, it sounds like that was such a 
an interesting breath of fresh air, I guess, to be working on that. And it's so interesting to me that you're able to kind of balance, like you're still working in animation at this time. How were you able to manage working on a book and, again, not really having any fill-ins for two years while still working on animation projects? Well, some of these books I wasn't working on on animation. At, like Green Arrow, I focused on that for about probably a year, year and a half before I took any freelance animation work on the X-Men again because Larry Houston kept calling me and asking me, can I, can I get you to do some board work? And I said, yeah, I'd love to. So I picked it up and I had guys around me who could help me out with it at that point. Like the guy who was doing uh, ink and finish work for Grell at that point, Brian Snowdy, who is a really excellent illustrator in his own right, uh, would jump in and ink... Uh, or do finishes on some of the storyboards. In fact, Mike Grell jumped in and did finishes on one of the storyboards with me because they, they could see it was just fun to do. So they jumped in, and the money was always good on those things. So it was easier to do than doing it all yourself, but it's not as uh, enjoyable. When, when I finally went completely back into animation and was at it for a couple of years using assistance and stuff, I finally decided, no, I got to go back to just doing this all myself. If I can't control it myself, I don't get what I want out of it, basically. Mm. I would throw work at some guys here and there just to help them out. But most of the time, I didn't want to collaborate on that stuff. Mm. I liked collaborating on comics, but even then, you were bound to run into working with people who didn't satisfy what you were doing, even if they were talented. It's hard to collaborate and find those guys who, uh, you know, hit 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 your sweet spot like Stefano does for me. He's perfect to mm. work with for me. Okay, so I have a question. So I mean, obviously, I want to talk about X Men, but also I'm I'm always curious about Pride of the X Men and what that process was like working on that book. Actually, not but that cartoon. Obviously, it didn't end up kind of working, and then you know the X Men that we know launched a few years later. What was it like working on Pride of the X Men? Oh, that, that was a blast because it was ours to do. We we were uh, we were bo- we had been bothering the head people at Marvel, that is Margaret Lesh and 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 Stanley and all those people about integrating the X Men into other shows. The reason the X Men ended up in um, Spider Man and Amazing Friends is because Larry and Will and I just constantly pestered them about integrating these characters into the shows. We kept telling them there's really something here that you can use and that will be um, uh, relatable to especially kids and teenagers. Because I always felt it was about outcasts coming together and using their their skills to be a family and to help the world. And this is something I think any teenager relates to, that they're outcasts, but they do find friends who they have common interests in. So these were characters that we all just felt were perfect for this medium, animation. And when they finally decided to take a shot at doing a pilot, they came to us and just said, okay, you guys have been pestering us about this. It's yours. Do what you want with it. We did meetings with with Stan to get started, and even Stan had not kept up with what was going on in it, 
And he basically thought we were talking about Cyclops and Marvel Girl and the Beast and Iceman, you know, and, and the Angel. And we said, no, 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 those aren't the X-Men anymore. There's only one or two of those guys still in the group. And he went, okay, well, you guys go off and do that. You know what you're doing. So we basically had free reign to do that show with Larry Parr, the writer, and we pretty much got what we wanted out of it. We had to do a show that was uh, a beginning but not an origin. We didn't want to go anywhere near an origin story because we knew that was just stupid and wouldn't get us anywhere. So my feeling was let's do it the way you would do a, uh, a show like The Rifleman, which had always been a favorite concept of mine from the time I saw it as a child, this idea of a young boy whose father is a hero, but you're seeing it all from the boy's point of view. So... He is more than what he seems to be. He sees his father as a superhero of sorts. And I and my feeling was, let's bring in Kitty Pride and have these characters seen through her eyes. And she that's why Jubilee ended up in the, the series, because this concept really worked for this group of characters, and it makes it more believable to the audience. If the kid accepts it, they'll accept it. And it worked great for us. We, we was, um, you know, it had its quirks, but it still worked marvelously. And it was done completely seriously. That is, we didn't integrate any funny animals. The only animal in it was Lockheed. And that was done as an homage to the comics more than anything else. And it was a way we got to tell them that, well, you've got an animal in it, you know, like, like Ms. Lion or something. Cause Every show had to have a funny animal in it. We were all sick to death of that crap. We'd had it with that. <laughs> so this was all happening at the same time, and they were developing Batman over at Warner Brothers. And this was just a movement that had been started by us and Bruce Tim and a lot of other people in the business who wanted to do a more serious approach to these characters. And this was the way that Marvel... Because Marvel, just shortly after they produced that, closed their doors. They, they, they were out of money, and they, they closed their doors. But this got um, Fox interested in it. And once Margaret Lesh became the head of programming over at Fox Kids, she immediately said, we're going to do the X-Men now. And that's how this whole thing got off the ground. But I think Pride of the X-Men just came off really good. It was, uh, I was so proud of that show. And I got to do all the voice work on it. That is, the, I got to cast part of it, but direct the, the, the voice work, too. So I just had a grand time on that. And don't ask me about Australian uh, Wolverine. That's, that's, a, that, that's one of those stories where you just go, how did I get snookered like that? Because we literally were told directly by Jim Shooter at Marvel that he was going to end up being an Australian. And that's why we were led in that direction to end up doing that. <laughs> and it was all just a BS, completely, you know. We later looked back and went, oh, oh, they just wanted to screw with us, and they, they got away with it. <laughs> that's unfortunate. Um, it is, I guess, one of those things that people that kind of look at and laugh at, which, you know, is a little unfair. Oh, uh, yeah, but it, it still came off. Okay, and and the the show itself was quite good because we had excellent voice talent. In, in when you get right down to it, the voice talent on that was very uh, very good, pretty top notch. I mean, you had 
I got to cast guys like John Stevenson as Professor X, and he had played uh, uh, Dr. Quest in the second half of the Johnny Quest series after the first actor. I forget if he died, if he died or, he pa- or he stepped away from the role. And I got to get uh, uh, Dan Galvezan to play Colossus for us. He had been Spider-Man on our shows. Just the whole cast was just great. I had a wonderful time with him. And Stevenson actually said to me after we finished the recording that, that day, he said, you know, this is the first serious attempt at these characters this kind of character that I've done since I worked on Johnny Quest. And that was a great compliment. Wow. That's great. So I'm curious. So, I mean, it's interesting how many, so you and Will and Larry, you all end up working on the second X-Men series. Um, Was it kind of a natural fit that of course you guys would kind of come back together and work on it? Well, yeah, but on top of that, it was kind of planned out. If you, if you watch the, um, um, the uh, uh, New York Comic Con uh, uh, thing we did recently, the panel we did for them, the Zoom panel, mm-hmm. uh, Stephanie Graziano, whose husband, Jim Graziano and Stephanie, uh, they, had, they were uh, heads of production over at Marvel, and they, once that shut up, and Margaret Lesh was planning on getting X-Men off the ground at Fox, these two were smart enough to open their own studio and hire all of us so that when it was being proposed, they were able to go, we have all the guys that know how to do that. And they hired Frank Bruner and all these really talented people. So, you know, it was going to be done at Saban and Saban was still involved in the production, but Fox wanted us on it. So that's how we ended up having it done over at uh, Graz and, they were smart enough to basically let Larry and Will uh, run with the, that first season and get it as close to a comic book as they could. And again, you have a real difficult situation in that you're going to have to please the fans, but you have to please a larger audience. Because at that point, the amount of fans who would have been watching this, actual X-Men fans, would have been in the hundreds of thousands. We needed to sell this to millions of people. So you had to do it so that it was palatable for them and they would understand what's going on and still uh, please the fans. And I think the fans got pleased enough to stay with the show because by the second season, we were doing all the stuff out of the comics and staying as close to the comics as you could do it. And that's that's to the, to the credit of Larry Houston. Larry was right on top of that all the time. Mm-hmm. Now, I mean, obviously there is the new X-Men, the art and making of the animated series book by Eric and Julia Leewald. And so your name comes up a lot and there's a lot of your art all throughout, peppered throughout the book. Um, it, what is it like to finally, it, it feels like ever since Disney Plus kind of has pushed X-Men back out to the forefront and people are discovering the X-Men animated series for the first time, people who didn't see it back, you know, weren't even alive back when it first was out. And it feels like people like yourself, Larry, Will are becoming you know, more well-known as kind of almost like you guys were the unsung heroes somehow of this show, this big juggernaut, but people never knew your names. And now suddenly people are starting to, you know, respect where this, you know, show really came from. What has that been like for you? Oh, I, I love that. And, you know, I've always pushed this show and, and people knew I had worked on it within the industry and stuff. 
but it's just nice that there's a huge fan base out there now. I mean, and this all literally started with shows like uh, like X-Men and Batman, the animated series and stuff. And I think that's where you got to see this stuff really take off in the movies, too. The, they were, at first, they were um, taken from the movies. That is, Batman, the animated series, was done because Warner Brothers wanted uh, to popularize Batman more because they had a huge hit with the movie. So they wanted the TV show done. And that was done by people who loved the comics. So they were able to really just take it and do a very faithful version of it. And the same thing with the X-Men. And these things led to, you know, especially the X-Men, the animated series, led to the X-Men movies because it was highly popular. It, it, out, uh, uh, it had better ratings than Batman every time it showed against it. Uh, we had, didn't understand it because Batman technically is a much more well done show it was really well done i was always admiring of what they were doing on that show because the animation was really good the design was something that i had advocated for a long time i would prefer preferred to see x-men done in that more simplistic max flasher style which i always felt was optimum for these characters mm. that's why i actually think that in the end the best Marvel animated show is Avengers Earth Mighty Earth's Mightiest Heroes, which I worked on, because they simplified things but kept them true to the character, and that works just great. You know, there's something to say for really detailed drawings and animation, but there's a lot more to say for just good drawing, simple that is backed up by excellent acting and timing and, and filmmaking. That, that does a lot for this stuff. I'm a big advocate of things where you let the audience's imagination work with what you're doing, that you don't try to put everything on the screen like you do in the big-budget movies these days. You don't need any imagination to go enjoy those. They're good films. I love them myself. But they're not like watching a Johnny Quest episode where a lot of that has very limited animation, but it has great acting and great timing and great writing. Hmm. Absolutely. So I have a question. So, I mean, you bring up Earth's Mightiest Heroes, which is such a, a wonderful show, and I just it's always making me sad that it didn't get more episodes because it was so well done. But I'm curious, you worked on... Well, the only reason it didn't, the only reason it didn't is because uh, they then wanted to ape the movies. Yeah. So they, they created a show that was more aligned what they thought with the movies, but that's not the point of the Avengers. No, it's not. But I'm curious about, I mean, you worked on the first kind of attempt at the Avengers having an animated series in the nineties. And I'm curious what, how you would contrast the experience between working on that series as opposed to Earth's Mightiest Heroes. Uh, I was just a contractor on that first show. I did it because I was doing a lot of work for Saban at the time. And that, that to me, was not much of a show. I, I, I didn't like what they did with the characters. I, I didn't like the voice work. There was pretty much nothing I liked about that show very much. It was fun to draw those characters, but they didn't know the characters. They were doing all these things with them that didn't have anything to do with the Marvel Comics characters. So, again, that's one of those things where somebody takes a property and they think they know better than the initial creators. And I think that's a huge mistake every time. 
You can see it in in when you look at the Marvel movies, how close they're trying to stay to the the legends and the the history of Marvel, but at the same time create something that's more realistic. Because you you can't do certain things on film that are going to look silly, and certain things will look silly if you're not very careful. Costuming is can be a big problem if you're not cautious about how you're approaching it. Some characters can be translated directly. The Hulk is amazing how he can be translated exactly from comic book to screen in the Avengers films, and he's exactly the same character. Mm -hmm. As opposed to uh, Thor, who has to change a bit, but is still the character we want to know. Absolutely. So uh, before I get actually to Earth's Mightiest Heroes, because I do want to dig into that for just a second, I'm curious about some of the projects that I guess probably kind of came your way in the mid-90s and weren't long stays on projects. Like you worked on a few issues, sorry, a few episodes of Gargoyles. I'm curious what that was like working on a book on a, a show like that. Uh, terrific. Uh, Frank Parr is a great director, and, and he really understood that stuff. Him and, uh, who was it, Greg Wiseman? came up with that concept. I mean, Disney takes credit for it, but that was the guys who were working on the show who came up with Gargoyles because Disney still wanted to continue to do Darkwing Duck and things like that. But they, once Batman came out, they wanted something Disney-esque that would reflect that Batman uh, um, uh, atmosphere. And Gargoyles was just wonderful. I'd love to see them do a film because they've been talking about it. But the, the series itself was great. So I, I did a couple of episodes. I think I did more than two. I think I worked on four or five uh, doing storyboards. But it was I was working on other projects at the time, so I didn't have time to do many of those. Um, I was working on so many other, literally, it's a blur how many shows I was working on at that time. And I think at that time, Will Minio had me contracted to work on uh, his Spider-Man series over at Saban and some of the other Saban shows like Silver Surfer and stuff like that. So it was a great show to work on, though. beautifully designed, beautifully thought out, and uh, uh, some really great voice work all around. Just Frank did a wonderful job with that. Now, in terms of other type of contract work, I'm curious, again, having had such a great experience working in for such a long duration on the X-Men animated series in the 90s, what was it like to then come back to the versions of those characters on both X-Men Evolution and Wolverine and the X-Men? Uh, I really enjoyed Wolverine and the X-Men. X-Men Evolution is a really well-done show, but not my cup of tea. I, I know guys who worked on it who did a wonderful job. And, and it was uh, enjoyable to watch, but it, it just wasn't something I was that interested in. I worked on a couple of episodes, and I just didn't have the heart for it. I, I don't know what else I was working on at the time, but when they started up Wolverine and the X-Men, I, I thought, this is really a great approach to do the show. I know they were using uh, Wolverine, who was popular, as the title character in the show but it was pretty much just an x-men show and they were trying to do the x-men as close as they could to the original so i enjoyed working on that a lot i was sorry that they didn't get another uh, a pickup on that but that had more to do with the studio going out of business than it did with the uh, uh, the response to the show and nobody else picked it up because there was some contractual but then Marvel was well known for getting themselves involved in contracts that they couldn't get out of, 
and it took them years to, you know, get back um, uh, to where they could have Spider-Man in one of those films, but they still don't have the rights at this point. <laughs> so it, they, they, created them, they created a lot of problems for themselves. In the end, though, it may have worked out for them because once they, start, they started off doing Iron Man and went on to the Avengers, I always thought that was their best approach to begin with. Hmm. Better to stay away from Fantastic Four and Spider-Man and all those things that were supposedly their best um, items on the shelves to go with something like the Avengers where you could bring in a whole universe of characters. And they did a great job with it. I'm still amazed today when I watch those films and I go, wow, how did we ever get here, you know? Because <laughs> that was my favorite comic book as a kid. The Avengers was just... Uh, a seminal moment for me when I picked up issue number one of that off of the stands. Now, when you when you fast forward to Earth's Mightiest Heroes, I'm curious, like, how, how did you become involved in it? And then, at the, I mean, at that point, you're not retired yet. You're still, you know, years away from that. But were you feeling like, you know, how much more do I have in me? Like, did that ever feel, or were you always still enjoying the projects that you never really felt that way? Oh, no, I was still enjoying the projects. In fact, I, I was really uh, having a great time at that particular juncture. Uh, I think my drawing was getting stronger and the storytelling was, was good. And that came about because of one of the guys I'd trained, one of the guys who had been an assistant to me, Benton Hoyk, was directing over there. And when that show came up, he recommended me to them. And I got the gig, and so that's one of these times where when you train somebody else, it pays off in the long run, because it ended up being two of the best years in animation I ever had. I just had a grand time working on that show. It's an and everything I got to do was seemingly really uh, either well-written or came right out of the comics. I, I remember getting to add a little thing into the origin of Captain America is I got to do that sequence with set in the past where him and Bucky jump on the, the, uh, uh, the rocket and Bucky gets supposedly killed and Cap falls into the sea and is frozen. And I got to add one little thing I'd always thought would be wonderful. And that's where as Cap's falling away from Bucky, Bucky salutes him before the thing blows up. And I thought, that's just something I think would really be a wonderful moment for everybody. But it had never been done before because in comics, you don't have time for that. That's that's one of the differences in animation and comics. Is comics is all about design and, and movement, and animation is about timing. So you've got to do cinematic beats and timing, where in comics... You can have a dozen things happening in one panel. Jack Kirby's proof of that, and that don't relate at all to time in reality. Such as, let's say, a character leaping through the air, punching half a dozen guys, and spouting four pieces of dialogue. That couldn't actually happen in a film. No. That does bring up a question of how you have, I mean as you've watched animation kind of mold and change in terms of how how it's done and how, you know, the process and, and, and how storytelling has evolved in cartoons as well over the last 30 something years, or it's more than that, actually 40 years. Um, what, what has been your kind of takeaway on, on how you evolve and how 
you are continuously kind of learning and and viewing different ways to kind of show things happening in the economy and movement and action like how does how do you still have that evolve well it's it's also um it it, it has to do with the fact that tv animation started off as, as a as a way to you know make a buck you know Hannah and Barbera and other producers in the 50s were trying to find a way to do cartoons like theatrical cartoons were dying at that point and they weren't making many of them anymore for you know for theaters because theaters were easing back from shorts into just having feature films with with very few shorts in front of them which I grew up with that I grew up going to a theater and seeing a Three Stooges short before the uh, uh, the main feature and so forth. But that was dying out quickly. So they were looking to get into TV, but they know that, knew they had to do it cheap. Otherwise, they weren't going to get on the air because uh, theatrical cartoons were very expensive even at that point. So they ended up doing these, coming up with these simple techniques, which were very innovative and very clever which basically turned cartoons into what uh, Jay Ward termed radio with pictures. <laughs> so that many times you'd have somebody having something happen to them off stage, you know, like somebody see something coming at them and they'd turn around and run the other way and the barrel would come rolling through and then you'd hear an offstage crash and then they'd cut to an image of what had happened to the character. These are the ways that they began to cut corners. And it was even used very effectively by Doug Wildey and Johnny Quest. Uh, that You watch Johnny Quest, you see that much of it is done like that. That It's done uh, with things going on offstage or pieces of dialogue being broken up so that uh, they cut away to other people listening to a character who was speaking offstage so they didn't have to do any more voice uh, animation, I mean, mouth animation than they needed to because that was always deadly. So it evolved from that along the way, and then more um, uh, sophisticated techniques began to be developed. And you got to see that, because this went on, the, the things I was talking about, the simplicity stuff went on through the late 50s and into the 60s. And when the uh, superhero fad after Batman, the TV series began, uh, came on to Saturday morning, they were doing more things that needed more action. So they were trying some new techniques. But I don't believe a lot of that changed much until the late 70s and early 80s when they were able to integrate some techniques that were working better. And it got completely revolutionized in the 90s where you had shows like Batman, the animated series, and and X-Men and other things that were using uh, uh, the evolving digital uh, stuff as well. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, by the, the turn of the century, many of the uh, props and backgrounds that would have to move in a show were being done as 3D elements and then put through programs that put a line around. So that, you know, you have props. Any props you see in a show these days are pretty much done as 3D elements. So it, it just took a while and things evolved and they found the techniques that they were using in feature films would be could be translated to animated TV series, which were taking off again, which were becoming more popular. And you didn't just have... Uh, one uh, place to show them, that is Saturday morning, which was, it was either Saturday morning 
or nothing for a long time. And then when we did G.I. Joe, uh, uh, the, the first miniseries, that was done as a syndicated show. And it was a huge hit, just gigantic. We were all shocked when the ratings came in. And here we were, second to Roots on ABC in ratings. It wow. was stunning. And that right there it, it, it instigated Hasbro to do a whole series and then do the Transformers. And other uh, 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 shops started to get involved in this. But Hasbro kept Marvel busy for years with things like Jim and, and the Transformers and G.I. Joe. And I think there was two or three other ones like that. My Little Pony was one. So these things uh, uh, gave enough money and, and there was less worry about airtime because they would find airtime on Saturdays or Sundays or afternoons. And pretty soon some of these things began to be shown in prime time on, you know, uh, local channels and stuff. But by the time you reach the 90s, my God, these things were all over the place. <laughs> and at this point in time, you've got Netflix and Hulu and all these other places that are just dying for more content. So there's more work out there than than is possible to do, it seems to me. But they do it, and I think that's because more people have gotten into the business as well. Hmm. When uh, when working on Avengers, as you said, what's so nice about so great about Earth Mightiest Heroes is that you know they were integrating so many stories ripped right from the comics, re- remixing them and, and rejiggering them around, but really finding a way to make it engaging. And the character designs were so on point, and you know pulling from the best references in the comics. Um, you know, was was it painful to watch it go away and to re- be replaced by something that was more? Oh, I hated it. Brand synergistic. I hated losing that job. Yeah, that, that 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 losing that job was just really painful. And then I was looking for more work uh, within that studio because it was a good studio, film, uh, film Roman. I, I enjoyed, always enjoyed working for the people over there and stuff. But they wouldn't give me a tumble on Avengers Assemble. And looking back, I have no regrets on that. I worked. I, I ended up working on on other series elsewhere. In fact, at that point. Just after I did that and wasn't able to get a gig over at uh, Film Roman, I got a call from uh, uh, 343, the studio for Microsoft that does Halo, and I became their main storyboard artist for their cinematics unit for about six years or so. So that worked okay. But, yeah, it was a real drag losing that job. Was there a particular character or a series of characters that you really liked being able to draw, you know, the storyboards for in their particular version on EMH? Wow, that that's a hard one because they were all really well designed and really enjoyable to draw. The Hulk was really well designed. Um, Iron Man, uh, Captain America, and Thor, of course. Uh, and the Wasp was really a fun. In fact, I did a sequence uh, in, uh, when they were headed before they headed off to Asgard to save Thor and Asgard from Loki. That was the finale of the first twenty-six episodes, where uh, the the Wasp took on the Abomination in the Arctic, and that was just a blast because these are two of my favorite characters, and they were designed so that they worked for animation, but recalled the uh, the original characters 
mm-hmm. they did all the same things. I don't believe we actually on that show did anything to change the characters' powers or who the characters were uh, personally and stuff. It was all pretty straight stuff. I mean, Captain America was Captain America. Tony Stark was in, was the asshole. <laughs> Tony Stark. It was it was great. You know, it was the whole thing was just fun to do, and it was really fun when they started bringing in like the Winter Soldier, because I got to do the introduction to the Winter Soldier and stuff. and Just a blast all the way around. You know, there was I don't believe I worked on any episode that wasn't entertaining to me as well. I was appreciated that the show did a proper version of Hawkeye in his classic costume, and I was lamented that we never really got that in the movies. We got most of everyone else, but there's just something about Hawkeye that we haven't really been able to see replicated, but EMH did it so well. I think that uh, that that's what really was delightful about the show is they stayed true to those costumes. I mean, when you saw Zemo, you knew it was Zemo, you know? <laughs> when you saw the Melter, you knew it was the Melter, you know? It was just fun stuff all the way around, you know? They, and, and, any kind, and these guys loved the stuff to begin with. All the, all the directors loved this stuff. Uh, the writers in particular, Chris Yost and uh, I forget who the other uh, main story editor was, but Christopher Yost, who actually has written on a couple of the films. He wrote, um, co-wrote the script for The Dark World, and he worked on, I think, the last Thor film as well. He did some work on that. But he just, he knew the stuff. He loved the stuff. Him and I talked about this. And he just absolutely loved Marvel Comics and what they did. And he wanted to make sure this was as close as as it could be. So they were really faithful. The whole team knew all of this stuff. It wasn't like coming in and when we were first starting, Larry and Will and I, and having to explain to writers who these characters were and try to get them to read comic books. These guys were already into it. They knew what they were doing. So it made a, it was a thoroughly enjoyable gig all the way down the line. I guess that's an interesting evolution of the process and, and working on kind of superheroes and cartoons is that, you know, as you said, at the beginning, people didn't know, like, it wasn't the people from comics, they didn't really know comics, but they had to work with these characters, and it, you guys were kind of the strong advocates, and now you're dealing with people who know these characters, and they're actually now working on these productions. Well, this is because we were there at the beginning, but that was also the beginning of of nerd fandom you know that was the really beginnings of it and they were getting into the business i was one of them you know we wanted to see this stuff done right and up to the point that i started working at marvel productions with the other guys we hadn't gotten much of that stuff the best we'd gotten was the batshi spider-man which i never really liked much it was one or two episodes that i thought were pretty good but most of it seemed really silly and badly done to me and the charming Marvel superhero show, which even though it's terrible, it's fun (laughs) because they're just doing the comic books on screen, you know, and that was kind of fun. I thoroughly enjoyed that, but we wanted to see this stuff done right. And now, you know, I end up look reading a book like uh, ready player one and I'm going, Oh my God, this guy's referencing all the shows I worked on, you know? <laughs> and you're going, we really have become part of this cultural revolution of, of nerd fandom. I mean, we're all part of it now. You have whole, uh, you know, you, you guys have podcasts and stuff that you're doing whole shows about things like this. That wouldn't have been, that wouldn't have even been thought worthy of talking about 20 years ago, but now it's a huge part of our culture. 
That's very true. Um, kind of wrapping up the, some of the, the look at your animation projects, I'm curious, after Earth's Mightiest Heroes ended, you would do end up on uh, Hulk Agents of Smash. What was, the, what, was the, what was it like working on that project, which is obviously very different, but and mashing together a lot of different characters and tones, but, you know, to do something, you know, totally different? It was actually fun. I thought it was going to be a drudge because I started doing it because a lot of guys I knew were working on it. And one of them had called me and said, I need a board guy to help me out on this. Can you, can you jump in? I know you're working at Microsoft. I said, yeah, I'd love to do some. And they were splitting up the show into quarters. So it wasn't as hard. Generally we were each doing an act, which is a third of a show or third of a half hour. And that's pretty intensive work. So they were breaking it up a little more and it made it uh, easier to do. But I thought, ah, this is just going to be silly stuff. And, in the end, the humorous take on the whole thing worked pretty well for it, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. I, I, got, I got better and better at it as I went along. Plus, it was the very first cartoon show that I had done where I was doing everything digitally. Prior to that, uh, the, the last show I had done regularly was Earth's Mightiest Heroes. And I th- what did I, I'm trying to think. I think I did Spider-Man just after that. Uh, but before I started at at, at, uh, at three four three, nonetheless, this was the first real show that I had done all digitally. That is, everything was done on a Cintiq drawing screen with my my uh, my computer, and it was really fun to do. It was uh, it was a way that you could do really detailed backgrounds and reuse them in, from panel to panel, create effects like speed by blurring stuff and so forth and that just made the process more interesting to me because we weren't able to do certain things in just pencil work when you're doing storyboards but once you have access to all these things that you can do with photoshop or with storyboard pro that really uh, adds to the artistry it's it's much more time intensive i i don't think that computer uh, digital drawing saves you any time at all. I think it actually creates more problems than it solves as far as time constraints are concerned. But it does add to the artistic quality of the storyboard in the end. And I had a great time doing it. I worked on, what did we do? Two or three seasons, I've forgotten. But I worked right up into the end on that one. It was, it was fun to do. Hmm. Now, I'm curious, you, I mean, you've mentioned uh, a few times in passing uh, working in the video game industry. What has that been like? Because obviously it's a, it's a different industry, but similar, I guess, muscles in terms of what you have to kind of do and, and learn. So what, it's been, what has it been like working on video games? Um, well, Halo, I was lucky enough to work on Halo for most of the time I spent in video games. That's like a, that's like a, a project made for my sensibilities. So it was pretty easy to... Uh, approach and what they wanted me to do was more work per drawing but less drawings because when we were doing a cinematic we're not actually animating everything out when you're doing a storyboard for a uh, an animated show they now want you to do what we call extremes in animation where you're doing the uh, um, all of the actual extremes of animation you're doing the, the setup of a person about ready to do something, then the in-between movements and the final pose. You never have to do that when you're working on a cinematic for uh, something like Halo. You just do the shot they need, 
and what it's what the basic look is going to be, and they do all the animation from there. Animating in 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 three D, especially on a video game, is completely different from animating in two D, which is all hand drawn. In three D, those characters are all there for you. That is, they're rigged puppets, so to speak. And what you do is you create a, a faux background, which will be rendered out by an artist later, and you uh, you pose these characters all the way through and animate that using the computer. So, so for instance, you're doing all the extremes, and the computer is extrapolating the in-between. Hmm. So it's a completely different approach. And in my case, I had a great time working on Halo, because Halo is just full of all the kind of things I enjoy. It has, uh, you know, armored characters and alien worlds and uh, action and space stuff. So just everything that uh, is easy to uh, approach and do. So I had a great time working on it, but it literally wasn't going to be a living for me. I, I just happened to fit in with this team really well, and we all had a great time working together. And when it ended... That was fine. You know, I, I'd had enough at that point because that entailed me going into a studio every day, which I had not done in almost 25, 30 years at that point. Mm. So I had to drive over to, to, to Kirkland, which is about, I don't know, half hour, 45 minutes from my house every morning and come home again. So it was more like a regular job at the end. Plus, there's so much dead time in, in video gaming. It's just like... It takes them forever to make decisions at companies like Microsoft. So we would quite often go six, seven months without doing any actual work. Oh, wow. They, we'd be doing make piece work, but not real making the game work. Hmm. That's not something most of us want to do. We want to actually do some work that's going to be seen by, by people who are interested in it. I, uh, I, I realized before we would let you go for the evening, I, I forgot to actually go back and talk about what the process of working with Steve Englehart on The Strangers was like. Again, one of the great guys to work with. I, I had a great time on that series because his basic concept when he, he presented it to me when we first talked was, uh, let's do a comic book that'll be as much fun as the Fantastic Four. And I'm like going, okay, I'm sold right there. Because I always loved Engelhart's work. I, I liked him at Marvel. I loved him on Batman. And so it was real easy for me to work with that guy. And we had, again, we had similar sensibilities and we were able to develop a friendship out of it. So working together was really easy. He liked working in that Marvel method. So I wasn't stuck with full scripts. And that makes, that gives you the feeling that you're a collaborator more than just a pencil for hire. So I really enjoy that. I've worked with other other writers who insist on doing a full script, and that can be really, really uh, uh, constraining. It's like being painted into a corner. It's hard to figure your way out of it sometimes. With that is creatively, you know what you have to do, but it's more fun when you can creatively show what it is you want to show, doing the same story, with much like I did with Roy. So Steve was great to work with. I thoroughly enjoyed The Strangers, and it broke my heart when that ended because I was just having a ball. And we had just about, we were right on the cusp of reforming the team and giving them about half of them new costumes because 
I had been stuck with a few costumes designed by other artists that I wasn't happy with. Mm. And uh, they wanted to keep them because they paid for them. When I came on to the gig and I went, okay, well, they're, they're okay. I can live with it. But in the end, uh, this gave me an opportunity to do these characters a little more the way I wanted to do them. And just at that moment, they called and said, just shut down what you're doing. Their Marvel's canceled all the books. Mm. So that was a that was a bit of a, a, a dagger in the heart. And the fact that we all own a little piece of the action keeps Marvel from ever doing anything with them. They don't want to pay any of us anything. Yeah. The contracts all say that we have a piece of the action, particularly the writers. They have a huge piece of it. So it just became prohibitive for them to ever really want to go into that well, I guess. I mean, yeah, often... That's I'll, the way I understand it, yeah. I, I do often hear about, you know, certain Malibu characters. People are like, well, what, can they do something with this? I'm like, nope. <laughs> yeah, they're just not available to anybody unless Marvel decides they're willing to pay people or we we all die and are gone at that point. Who knows? <laughs> I, I just don't know. I think they could easily, if they wanted to do these, they could just incorporate us into the process and make it uh, make it doable. But again, I, I guys like me, I'm not really appropriate for modern day comics on the level that Marvel and DC are doing them because of their approach. And most of it is not to my taste to begin with. But it's also more about uh, redoing the same thing over and over again. I haven't honestly read a Marvel. DC comic in about 15, 20 years because they they just seem to be doing the same thing over and over again. And I, I know that's what you're doing when you're trying to sell a product. But back in the day, we weren't really trying to sell a product. We were just trying to tell some fun stories and have a good time doing it. Mm-hmm. So the last question I guess I'll leave you with um, is, and I've talked with uh, Stefano about this, but what was it like working on Batman Family and kind of switching off with him? Oh, again, I had a blast because Stefano is just a great collaborator and it was fun to either pencil, you know, and have him ink or and at times I was inking his stuff. So we were just having a real good time doing that. And it really threw us that when we were done with the series, it was the best selling Batman book they had at the time next to the Jim Lee Batman. But they didn't even want to talk about continuing it. They just shelved it. Hmm. And I'm going, that makes no business sense to me. So, But they just basically shelved it, so that was the end of it. We never heard uh, anything about it past that. But that's what they told Stefano, is that, no, we've just decided not to go any further with this. Hmm. But it, And at that point, you know, it was great to have a book like Jim Lee was doing, which was selling really well because everything was tanking at that point. It was like just after the turn of the century and wow, there was nothing selling worth a crap because back in the day I was working on books that were selling, uh, Jesus, we had a failure if we weren't selling 50 to 100,000 a month. Yeah. <laughs> and by the time I quit comics, we were lucky to be selling, you know, 30 to 40 thousand a month and these days they don't even come close to that it's amazing to me how they stay in business the smaller companies doing this i know how the big ones do it because these are just marketing tools for them and that's what they should be at this point that actually gives you more freedom to do new things with them if you want 
But, you know, a comic book these days is just a, a, a something to support the larger uh, uh, industry of movies and books and various other things. Mm-hmm. It's too bad. It is, but it was bound to happen. It was just one of those things. I, I just wonder how the small guys stay in business. I, I guess they're just doing it by print-on-demand and stuff. I don't really know since I'm not involved in it. But it, it, because there is a ton of artists and writers out there. There's just an immense amount of people creating comic books. Mm-hmm. That's another thing. How do they sell all of these different comic books? I, <laughs> I didn't realize the market could be that huge. Um, Jerry Conway, I don't know if you follow that recently he wrote something about how if he was in charge of comic, like Marvel or DC, he would just stop publishing and then just kind of reframe who they're writing it for. And he kind of blamed himself and other writers in the seventies for starting to write to an older audience at the time, as opposed to, you know, the, the kid audience that in theory was, you know, churning through every few years, um, and starting to kind of make it more mature to the point where, they weren't writing for the new audience anymore. And then the new audience just disappeared because they kept writing for someone else and someone who's older and how they almost need to reframe that question about who are they really writing this for and how do you keep your audience, you know, how do you get new readers and how do you keep this going and how, you know, a reason why the comics were originally successful is because they were going for a broad younger audience that people would cycle through and cycle out and that would keep the industry going. Well, they were also writing for that audience because it's the only audience they had. I mean, yeah. it, as you know, it initially started out that comics sold great during the during World War II because GIs were reading them, and tons of people were actually reading, you know, superhero comics because they were a mythos reflecting what was happening over in Europe at the time. So it was huge sales, and then those dropped dramatically, and they were considered kids material because only kids were reading them so they were gearing everything toward children and I actually think they were at a point in the 50s where they were a little too childish and silly they they needed to find that medium and that medium happened at Marvel Comics and the Marvel during the 60s is just a prime era for comics in my opinion it's it's like the perfect time and the perfect place because Everybody was just being as creative as they could. Nobody was making a ton of money, but they were still making a living, and that's all an artist can ask for sometimes. But this idea that everything has to be geared toward one audience, I I agree with Jerry in a lot of ways, because I think it's gone way over the line in the adultness of, of, of especially superhero comics. I, I don't know if there's really a need for that, but I think there's a place for it. It may not be in comics. It may be in graphic novels or something. It, it's hard to say this because America, we're such a bizarre, uh, what do I want to say, overly uh, uh, moralistic society. <laughs> and it's not like being in Europe where a child can read uh, things that might be considered more adult and still at the same time read things that aren't. Like a child in Europe can read uh, read Asterix or they can read, they can pick up a, a book by, uh, oh God, who's the illustrator? Well, let's, Jordy Bernay comes to mind. Hmm. He could read Torpedo and Torpedo is nothing but sex and violence. <laughs> but it's still great stuff. 
So I think there's a place for everything, but we really have gotten into a corner with the superhero stuff. The superhero stuff is just, and Archie is another good example where they've gone with the Archie character. I mean, it hardly resembles Archie anymore. Hmm. True. So it's it's a matter of the creators have to change and they have to also watch out for traps like, here we go again, I'm going to get into Alan Moore one more time. You know, (laughs) he, he comes up with ideas that he thinks that he created some of the last best comics, but he almost ruined comics with the killing joke. That thing disgusted me when I read it. I went, my God, this is beautifully drawn and written, and it's it's like it's like kill porno. Hmm. It was it, I just didn't understand why he had to do it like that, and it was one of those things where I thought this is not a good moment for comics. I think that Miller did some great stuff with Batman Year One, even though that was more adult, but it wasn't what. Year one, I mean, what uh, the Killing Joke was by any means, and and Moore has done did some other great stuff. He did uh, he did uh, the Watchmen, which I think was great, all except the finale. I thought the finale was just terrible, but I, I loved the the book itself. I thought it was really lovely, hmm. and that was very adult material, but not in the same vein as the Killing Joke. So, I think there's people you can point at and say, yeah, they're a little bit responsible for this and they should take a little more responsibility for it because they should have thought this out before they did it. Mm-hmm. Is kind of what I'm getting at here. Yeah. Same thing with what's going on in comics right now. So much of it has to do with sexual identity and so forth. And I, I know that's part of society, but is it really what superheroes are about? Again, I refer back to superheroes as being mythology, which is, I think, what they are. But again, you're going to run out of stories sooner or later unless you change things. Hmm. And maybe that's the real thing here, is maybe we've just run our course doing superheroes. And maybe it's time to find something else to do. Maybe it's time to just, you know, do each individual story separately. Because great adventure stories are quite often just one separate story. They're not a continuation. They're the Three Musketeers or the Count of Monte Cristo or, or the Prisoner of Zenda. And these are all standalone stories, but they stand the test of time. It is an interesting question about, you know, is serial continuity damaging and can it be damaging? And for like the long-term health of, you know, a medium or an industry or, you know, even a character. And that's, you know, I mean, you're seeing that even with more modern interpretations on even a character like James Bond, where it was always kind of just standalone adventures. It was, it was still James Bond. It might be someone else playing the character, but it was still a James Bond adventure. And now you're starting to feel like, well, now they have to, you know, this this version of Bond, it's going to be kind of a linked, you know, thing that, do we need that? <laughs> or can we just have an adventure? Yeah, see, I think that what we're getting at here is the fact that they want to keep this stuff as continuity, but they can't do it because the characters would age out in reality. By now, Batman would have been dead as Superman would have. You know, they just keep making him younger and restarting it. And that shows the failing of the medium itself. I'm going to leave it on they a happier really, note, though. They can't really keep continuity and then change it on you, you know? DC's been trying to do this since they did uh, 
the uh, uh, the, the final uh, crisis thing, and it was like once they did that, they screwed up everything because they've been rejiggering their universe. <laughs> My God, I hear they're going to start again next year doing a new universe, and I'm going, oh, give me a break. I Who mean, can believe anything at this point. <laughs> True. So I'll, I'll I'll leave on a happier note then. Um, looking back at X Men, because again we have we have this beautiful the art and making of the animated series book that just came out. Yeah, everybody again, should go out and buy that. It's a gorgeous book. I got my copy, and it is stunning. I didn't think it would be this beautiful. Abrams did a wonderful job putting it together. They absolutely did. So. Um, uh, of the characters that you kind of did a lot of the initial kind of design work for, and I mean, there's some shots in here of your initial interpretations of Cable, for example, uh, and like, you know, how to get his face right. What were some of the ones that would be kind of nearest and dearest to your heart? Uh, Storm, I think, is one of them. I loved what I got to do with Storm because I was working from the Jim Lee versions of the X-Men when I did those. So you can't use every bit of that detail, but he had a great feeling for those characters. And Storm, I think, came out really good. Who else? Cyclops was pretty good. Uh, let me think here for just a minute. Uh, I think Wolverine. I, I had a great time doing Wolverine. He was just, I wanted to nail that down to exactly the character I thought it should look like and still make it feel like the Wolverine that we've known for so long. And I think I really nailed that one real well too. Most of them were just a lot of fun to do to begin with Gambit. I didn't have really any uh, emotional uh, attachment to, but I, I really got to enjoy him when I started drawing. Him. So all of them have their aspects that I like doing. And some of them have Will Minio's feel in there, like Beast. He always loved Beast. So he actually did the initial rough on that, that I worked from. Hmm. So there was a few other artists involved here and there. It would mostly be Will Minio throwing his two cents in. Gene Gray, I'm pretty sure that he did the initial rough on Gene. But I did uh, uh, like Professor X and Cyclops and any of those main group, basically, that we used in the show. Jubilee. No. So they, they were just all pretty much fun to draw, and I got to do what I wanted with them. They, there wasn't really, if they changed anything, I didn't notice it, you know, and that would have been Larry or Will doing it, and quite often they wouldn't have handed it off to another artist. They would have handed it back to me. Hmm. Oh, I have a question, we're actually. Good, uh, close friends. Huh? I was just going to say, I had a question about the Cyclops. Um, looking at. Again, in this book, there's you know some of the design work that was originally done for Pride of the X Men and also for uh, X Men the animated series. Personally, do you like which version of Cyclops did you kind of like more? Did you like the Pride of the X Men more simple kind of not having the the extra kind of accoutrements that Jim Lee added to the Cyclops character, or did you like more of the look that he got in uh, TAS? Boy, that's a tough one, because I love the simple designs of the initial comic books a lot. So it's hard for me not to like those, but I I liked everything Jim Lee did with those characters. I, I thought he had a great feel for all of that stuff, and we needed to keep it updated. So there weren't many characters in that show that I didn't like. Some of them were a little too much. This was at that period when you had that... That, that it, before Image Comics was starting, we had all those guys doing characters like uh, uh, who's the who's the guy with the tentacles? Omega Red. Oh yeah. And 
I always thought that was a goofy looking character. And, you know, I did it as seriously as I could, but I just thought it was goofy. You know, it just didn't, didn't strike me as a, as a design I would have done or that I thought was, was great for this particular show. But, you know, that's just my opinion. I, I just tried to stay faithful to all this stuff when I was doing it, but I probably would go back and, and do characters that were more in line with the traditional like Storm, I probably would go back with the, the straight white hair. I always thought that was really cool on her. I always hated the mohawk. And what we did with the big hair was fine. I, I could live with that. That, that, was, that was okay. But, but the traditional look of the straight white hair, just, I always thought was striking on a black woman. Hmm. Um, when, when, when you are, when you were working on that project and again, you're doing classic, more classic characters and then they're kind of coming up against the much more modern characters of the time, like characters like Cable and Bishop, who again, at the time you guys were doing this were maybe around two or three years, like not very much at all. What, what was it like to kind of synthesize a style that the characters all looked like they did work in the same world, even though they were generations apart in terms of their original conception? You know, I don't think we really thought too much about that. We tried to keep them all uh, in in a similar style of animation, I think, is what we were approaching. Because by the time you get past the main characters and some of the main recurring characters that I did, you, Frank Bruner was doing most of the designs at that point. So many of those ancillary characters or characters uh, uh, that came into the show after the first season. Many of those weren't by me, but Frank's uh, uh, Frank's uh, uh, thinking on it was very similar to mine, and he was doing animation-style drawing. That is, no black, trying to make sure everything was uh, solid uh, in just line form so that you didn't need to back it up with... Uh, with drop shadows and stuff. Drop shadows were used on these characters, but they weren't part of the initial design. So I just think that the design, initial design of the show just continued because the other guys followed it, is what went on there. Hmm. Once, once somebody establishes a style, you try to follow through with it if you're designing on the show. And the, the producer would have insisted on it anyway. Larry and, and the Grazianos would have wanted a continuity there because they were doing their best just to stay afloat as a studio. And this was their big project. What do you think the, that X-Men show would have been like without Larry? It wouldn't have existed, I don't think. That show would have gone... The only guys who could have pulled that together properly at that point would have been Larry, Will, myself, and maybe two or three other guys like Boyd Kirkland or Frank Parr could have done it. But uh, Larry is really the heart and soul of that show. He wanted everything to be as Marvel Comics as it could be. He's the guy who stuck in all of the the cameos Mm -hmm. by characters just like... You know, like Thor looking up in the sky as something went over. He was just pulling out everything he could to get these things done. Because in many cases, he couldn't use characters like Spider-Man or the Fantastic Four. Those were characters that weren't available to him. So he just had to pick and choose what he could get away with at the time. <laughs> and he loved Marvel Comics. He was he, he is a huge fan of Marvel Comics. So he just wanted to make a Marvel Comics show that had the sensibilities of what Stan and Jack did at Marvel Comics initially, where 
the universe was integrated, and it it it, 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 it all these characters existed at the same time. It wasn't like so many shows or movies where it's just this character and they pretend like the rest of that world doesn't exist. That's was that's what was so revolutionary about the Marvel uh, extended universe cinematic universe is the whole world of Marvel exists there. We can see that now. And this was what excited me so much when they started. I went, wow, they're really going to attempt this. They're really going to do something that's like Marvel Comics where every episode refers back and needs the episode that was behind it. So this is something that that Larry was always thinking about. Hmm. So yeah, it's Larry Houston. I would give him total credit here. Last question. I mean, uh, working at Marvel Animation like you did in the eighties and in the nineties, do you have a do you have a Stan Lee story? Oh, I've got a few, but I got one really good one. Uh, Stan, uh, when when I was working on Spider Man and his Amazing Friends, and and uh, Stan was doing, he had this big office in this little courtyard, this rancho style courtyard building that the Patty Freeling had their studios in, and Marvel took over that because David DePatty uh, made the deal with Marvel, and it became Marvel Marvel uh, Productions. And But it was still DePatty Freeling. A lot of the same people were still there, and then they brought us in. And Stan was still doing other stuff at the same time, including the comic strip. Well, Stan had the best office in the whole uh, arrangement. The building was a square with a huge patio in the middle of all the offices so that when you walked into the building and went into any of the main offices on the interior, you could see this patio. And Stan had this this huge office that was all glass, and everybody could see Stan's office and what was going on in it. Well, Stan had hired me to do to ghost the Sunday Spider-Man uh, page because Fred Keita needed to get ahead on the... Uh, the dailies at that point. So I immediately jumped on it. I was like, oh my God, I get to work with Stanley. But I didn't realize how tough he was to work with. He was just difficult to work with in certain ways. And I went in one day with one of my strips and he wasn't happy with how I had positioned Spider-Man who was up in a corner climbing the wall. And he said, now I want you to, we need to fix this because this needs to get inked. I need to send this off to, I think it was Joe Sennett was inking him or Frank Chicoya. He says, I need to get this done. So we're going to do this right now. And I'm going, oh my God, I can't just do this because I just wasn't confident enough to draw in front of people. And everybody else was looking at what was going on in the other offices. And Stan says, let me pose for you. <laughs> and he literally puts a ch- chair up against the, the corner of the wall where the walls went together. And he poses like Spider-Man. And he says, now you draw me like this. And I'm sitting there drawing this. And my real boss, Lee Gunther, is sitting in the office right across the way looking at me like, what the hell are you doing? And I'm like, because like, I was not supposed to be doing this on office time. This was a freelance gig. Oh. So I sat there and did that. But this is the kind of thing that happened when you were working with Stan Lee. He was Stan Lee. He was really that character. <laughs> That's amazing. But he was always enjoyable to work with. There's no doubt about that. But that was one of those things that I was happy once I dropped the gig because a couple of weeks later I just said, 
you know, Stan, I, I just can't do my work here properly and get this done as well. So he moved on to somebody else after that. Okay. Well, Rick, thank you. I cannot tell you, thank you so much for taking the time out. I mean, we went, I think we were originally said we'd do an hour and it's been more like an hour 44. So I really appreciate you taking the time and uh, telling all these stories. It's been great talking to you about it. And thank you for, again, all these animated projects that you've worked on that I've enjoyed over the years. I thank you for being part of them and thank you for sharing all your stories. Oh, it's been a pleasure. And send me a link to this when, when, when it's ready to go and it's up. Absolutely. We'll do. Okay. N- nice talking to you. Nice talking to you. Thank you so much. You bet. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.